You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Anne Rice is the author of Interview with a Vampire, The Vampire Lestat, Queen of the Damned. Her more recent books include The Wolf Gift and The Wolves of Midwinter. Her newest book is Prince Lestat. Thank you for joining me, Anne. I'm delighted to be with you. Delighted. Anne, you have brought for us something I think your readers have been waiting for a long time for. This reads to me like... Anne Rice's unified theory of everything in the <laughs> world of vampires. <laughs> I think that's a good title. Uh, I I really did want to do the book this way. You know, it was a conscious choice. I could have done the book as a memoir from Lestat's point of view, very personal and very intense. And I thought, no, I want to talk about the whole tribe. I want to talk about what they're all doing in the present time. And um, I was at times overwhelmed, but it was... A very intense and and worth I felt worthwhile experience. Yeah. Well, from the get go, you give us the stop you know and love, and it's really fun. In the almost in the beginning, he's uh, trying to deal with this all these vampires around him, and he's uh, and he thinks it is chaos. But who am I to police these preternatural nincompoops? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> So talk about uh, recreating and revisiting uh, the Brat Prince after all these years. Well, you know, he's not a character that I can just produce overnight. I can't just say I'm going to write through Lestat today. I have to woo him as if he was really an entity on an astral plane somewhere who's going to come down and speak through me if he chooses to. And it really does feel like that. And I began to just miss him incredibly about, I don't know, three or four years ago. And I thought, I'm going to go back and I'm going to reread my work and see, see if maybe I can't take these characters somewhere other than where I took them before. And because when I left, I associated them with depression and darkness and tragedy and loss. And um, I felt I'd exhausted what I had to say with them. Well, anyway, I went back, started reading all the works. All kinds of new questions came to me, all kinds of new ideas, all kinds of new um, angles on what's the start thinking, what's going on, what's happening with Benji and Sibel, what's happening with Marius, Armand, you know. And, and, and over the years, the stories had kind of continued in my mind. Like I had known, for example, in my mind, that the character of Daniel, the boy interviewer from Interview with the Vampire, was now healed and doing all right with Marius. But I hadn't written that down anywhere. So I tapped into all of that, all those reflections, all those, um, how shall I say, developments that had gone on in my subconscious. And I tried to give voice to it and let it come out on the page. It's so much fun to read. I can tell that... As a reader, I could say, this author is having a lot of fun yeah. with this. Yeah, a lot of fun. And now, there's a lot of stuff going on here. Mm-hmm. And as a reader, when we approach us, you know, I had a little bit of a frisson of dread because you gave us the, this argot at the beginning. Mm. And, and that's, you know, common in, in fantasy novels. And, mm-hmm. and often that's just like a lead and weight. But I think this is really helpful for yeah. readers of these books to get this, understand the language that the characters will be speaking in. So talk mm-hmm. about creating the blood argot. Well, to me, again, that was fun. I hate to overuse the word fun. F-U-N, but it was. I thought, I'll start off with Blood Genesis, where I'll talk about what happened in the beginning. And I'll put that right at the front, you know, for new readers or any old reader that wants to revisit that. Won't make it too long, a couple of pages. And then I'll put this argot, all the different terms. And um, again, I enjoyed doing that. I enjoyed clarifying things. That allowed me then to go into the book without reiterating everything. Uh, so much. I mean, I reiterated some things, but it freed me up to plunge right into the story to say what's going on now. And in the back of the book is a list of characters, actually, and um, um, a guide to the older books. 
written by me, just an informal little guide. I'd always wanted to do these things with my novels, but what would happen is I'd finish and I'd be too exhausted, and I wouldn't fulfill my plan to add uh, a glossary or a character list and so forth. But this time I made sure to do it. So you did it all up front. Well, divided. Some I, I turned in the manuscript and then actually wrote the list of characters later and sent it on to New York, and then I sent on the guide to the books on to New York. So... I got it done, though. That was the main thing. Whereas in the past, I'd always been too pooped. You know, I collapsed and thought, oh, I'd love to add this and I'd love to add that. Because I think things like that in books are fun. I really, I really, here I go again, fun. But I enjoy that when I'm reading a book. Well, I really enjoyed it, too, because I came back to the books after, you know, uh, it's been a while since you've written any of these books. Mm -hmm. So for anybody who's, you know, plunging into the vampire Lestat to have this kind of effective, really entertaining to read uh, recap, uh, you know, last week on Lost, Mm -hmm. uh, does it works really well. It's a lot of fun. Now, one of the things that interested me, though, in the Blood Argot is, and I think this is... um, indicative of this change of heart you had talked about within the book and that I think happens in the book is that um, all the different powers of the vampires and this stems from your book a couple years ago The Wolf Gift. Mm -hmm. These are referred to as gifts Mm -hmm. and I think that's a really interesting choice on your part so I'd like you to talk about that. Well I, I think I do see the idea of vampiric power as the dark gift. It is a real gift. You become immortal. You take on preternatural gifts, greater strength, uh, uh, a rejuvenation process when you you take the dark blood. And these should be seen as gifts. Um, That's what fascinated me right at the very, very beginning when I wrote Interview with the Vampire, the idea that these creatures would be enhanced by what happened to them. They wouldn't be degraded by it. They would not become feral or grotesque or monstrous so much as that they would be a bit like angels and that would be that's why it would be all the more confusing to them that they had to take life to stay alive that they had to feed off the blood of human beings and sometimes innocent human beings simply to survive what would be the conflict i thought to be given these near angelic powers and yet have to kill human beings whom you were coming to appreciate and value more than you ever had when you were a living human being well, one of the things that this uh, novel begins with is the voice, which is this disembodied voice that Lestat hears. Mm-hmm. And this takes us to, I think, one of the essential subjects of this book that runs through this book is the separation between mind and body, between mm-hmm. voice and intent and our own physicality. So right. I'd like you to talk about creating the voice and uh, the thread that the plot driver that really uh, makes this book uh, a page-turner as well as something that's thought-provoking. Well, um, I felt it was time, you know, for this particular voice to appear and start speaking. And I've been watching people's reactions. Some people say they guessed immediately who the voice was. Other people said they had no idea and were completely surprised when they discovered who the voice was. And I don't want to spoil anybody's reading experience, but... um, I was fascinated by the personality of the voice. You know, what must have been the evolution of this entity, the voice? And I never really dealt with that in earlier books. I had never dealt with it, and I'd never gone there. And in fact, I went a number of places in this book where I'd never gone before. The history of the Talamasca, who actually founded it and why. You know, I'd hinted at it before, and I kind of knew what I wanted to do with that, and I finally did it in this book. I just said, come on, come out of the closet with the Talamasca, for heaven's sakes. Say who founded it and just when, you know, when it happened. And, of course, I had to go back through my books and see all these different things I'd said about the Talamasca. 1748 is the year, you know, they first appear in history. But I had a great time doing all of that, and I don't think... What? How should I put it? I think I've opened a lot of doors for the next book and the book after. Uh, so you're going to continue to explore this universe? Definitely. Oh, I, uh, good. I, the second book, um, it will just really basically continue all of this. What's going on with characters like Rashomandis, Teskamen, Hesketh, you know, Grim, people that we don't want to explain on the air who they are, but they're characters in this. What happens with Rose? What happens with Victor? What happens with Benji, you know, who's the little 
the radio guy in the book. He's the vampire who starts the uh, the streaming internet radio show for other vampires that mortals don't even notice. They just think it's concept art and they don't pay any attention to it. But vampires around the world hear Benji's broadcast and they call him from all over the world. And now Benji in this book scores a pretty big PR success with his radio station. <laughs> Changes the history of the tribe. So I want to explore more of that. Where's Benji going to go now? You know, I had a lot of a lot of fun with Benji. I could tell. And as I was reading about Benji, I have to admit I could have could not help but think of, of your son. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> the yes. radio broadcaster in his own podcast. And, and, you know, I've listened to some of that, too. And I said, wow, she's been listening now to the radio here, oh, hasn't oh, she? Definitely. Uh, Benji was going to have a broadcast radio show on some sort of network or something until I visited my son's radio show, Christopher Rice, Eric Shaw Quinn, The Dinner Party Show. And I went to their little studio in West Hollywood where they broadcast an Internet show every week, and I was their guest. And I thought, well, Benji would, of course, do this. He'd have an Internet radio show like Christopher's. So that was very instructive to me. That was very helpful. One of the joys of this book, and I think your books in general, is your willingness to take these kind of ancient tropes that have been around Mm -hmm. for hundreds of years, thousands of years, and creatures who are thousands of years old, but relentlessly bring them up to speed with modern technology Mm -hmm. and put that, make that part of the plot. There Mm -hmm. are technology is everywhere in this book, and it's really important to the plot. Yeah, I I think if the vampires, if if your cosmology is real to you, if your immortals are real to you, you have to do that. You have to you have to do what's logical and inevitable for them. Of course they're going to have iPhones. Of course they're going to rush out to photograph <laughs> Lestat if he appears in Paris. Of course they're going to text each other like, wild, he's been seen in, you know, in, in, in the Rue Saint-Jacques. Get over there, you know, whatever. But be careful, you know. He can blast you and you'll be dead, you know. That's only, that's inevitable that you, if you don't, if you don't let your universe expand to include all these inevitabilities, it's not going to have the richness that it that it ought to have, really. And it's also uh, uh, gives you a lot more entertaining uh, plot twists as well. You use this, make these things part of the plot. Let's talk mm-hmm. a little bit about Fareed and Seth. What Fareed is doing oh, is Fareed, v- yeah. very, very interesting. Well, the character of Fareed is, is introduced very early on, so I don't think it's a spoiler to talk about Fareed. Fareed's a vampire doctor. He's, he's a surgeon and a researcher who gets the dark gift from an ancient healer, Seth. Um, and... Seth brings Fareed over into the vampire world to be a vampire doctor. And this is all very logical to an ancient healer like Seth to do this. He has no concept of vampires being sinful and wicked and this being a curse. He, Fareed's dying. He, he offers him the dark gift. Fareed accepts it, um, half thinking he's dreaming in a coma that none of this is real. And then he wakes up to discover that he's now a vampire doctor. And he begins working to fathom the mysteries of, of the physicality of, of the other vampires. He begins to work on what the process is by which the spirit Amel uh, created the vampire, the mutation of the vampire. So uh, to me, this was very thrilling because, how should I put it? I felt, I felt like I owned the question there. Instead of just having a mortal doctor, like Dr. Von Helsing, come in contact with my immortals, I made one of them a doctor, and which I felt was exactly, inevitably, what would happen. And I, I felt I jumped ahead of the predictable thing. The predictable thing would have been some brilliant mortal doctor, you know. And I thought, no, no, go beyond that. Go beyond it and have a vampire doctor. Get And, and I'm not finished with Fareed. I mean, Fareed's up to all sorts of things. Oh, you know? no, and, and it's really... <laughs> Farid is a really great character, and he also brings into to my this, into question mind this question of body and spirit. I think one of the things you're doing in this book is you're using the vampire trope and the supernatural universe you've created to explore some of the concepts of modern science that's now mm-hmm. been um, mm-hmm. excavating about the brain mm-hmm. and what consciousness is exactly, you're using the tropes to externalize that and turn what might be kind of science, what you call science poetry, Mm -hmm. into plot points and characters we care about. Yeah. Well, I think we're all involved 
in, in an incredible revolution in science. I mean, every day we discover something absolutely incredible about ourselves. I mean, just, just the discovery of DNA, the discovery that you could uh, go back and extract DNA from teeth pulp of, of ancient individuals and, and actually study the evolution of mankind through mitochondrial DNA, all of this is so dazzling. And I felt, again, this was inevitable for the vampires to care about this. They have to. My problem with all of that is I am not scientifically educated. And so I have to write more from the point of view of other characters other than Fareed. Um, I have to be on the receiving end of the information from Fareed. It's hard for me to go into his mind, but I, I do try to do that from time to time. Well, I think you do a great job. Because in this book, there's a lot of this book is arguably science fiction. Mm-hmm. And you do a great job of the science fiction practice of hand-waving, which is kind of say, there's this stuff happening over the here, and it has to do with these developments. Mm-hmm. And you, then you kind of uh, back off and refer to science poetry. And I really love that concept of science poetry. So mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that. You know, I think it was my husband, Stan Rice, that introduced me to that idea that that all that you read about different fields, whether it's theology or science, it's it's ultimately poetry. It's metaphor and symbol. You know, we, we, we use language to talk about fact, but language is not fact. Language is not is not material. Language is about it. And and I think he was the one that introduced me to seeing like the language of Jung and Freud as as poetry. It's metaphoric and symbolic attempts to talk about something that we really can't entirely define, how the brain works. And once I saw that, it gave me a renewed respect for all the various, um, all the various languages: theology, science, psychology, psychiatry, medicine, and so forth. We are talking about something um, often that we know only through its behavior or the absence of any visible, visible presence, but. Particle, say particles, for example, will behave in a certain way, but we don't know why. We just we all we can know is that they do behave in ways that are just mind-boggling, and that's why we want these big particle machines, and we want to keep investing millions in neutrinos and, and quarks because we can see the behavior, but we can't really figure it out. And on the other hand, um, nobody can figure out quite how a wolf pack is organized and why a wolf pack can break into groups and ambush and sneak up on the prey. Nobody knows how those wolves communicate with each other to do that kind of organized behavior any more than they know why a sponge, if you grind it up to pieces, will reorganize itself completely in the water, you know, into a, into a bound organism. We know there's communication going on there in a beehive, but we really don't know how. We don't understand it. And, and all the language that speaks of all these things is metaphoric and symbolic language. Words are, well, all language is symbolic language. And and I think once you see that, maybe you don't feel so bad about not being able to comprehend it like me. You know, it's a kind of poetry that's hard for me. Well, it's, it's true, too, that nowadays Freud's work accomplishments are seen to be more literary than they are scientific. He's not well, highly regarded as science, but his literature, exactly. it's a great insight into the way people think about the way people think. Exactly. That's a perfect example. And uh, he, you know, the, obviously psychoanalysis is in crisis as, as a legitimate field, but who has not been influenced by the, by the Oedipus complex, the idea of it? Who has not had their eyes opened by the idea of this subconscious? in the id. It's been hugely beneficial for all of us. And if we don't see it as precise scientific language, then we are free to see all its magnificent implications, you know, and to ponder them without trying to make them into dogma. You have to learn to cut with a machete before you can cut with a scalpel, and the same is true of language as well. Yeah, I I think that's great, yeah. Now, one of the things early on uh, Lestat refers to himself and vampires in general as a damned race mm-hmm. and that they ought to be exterminated. That's how he starts the book. And that is a big part of his character arc in this book. So I'd like you to talk about creating. You have a lot of characters in this book. They all have a lot of very interesting character arcs. So I'd like you to talk about um, integrating 
all of the books you'd written before into one book? Did you have mm. a, a big spreadsheet with uh, push pins and, and yarn on the wall? No, no, but I did a lot of reading of the earlier books. And, and I think Lestat's development is is very clear from the beginning. He he was a an atheist born in the age of reason, really, though he lived in the country and was not an educated man. He went to Paris during the age of reason. He, he was a cynical, practical-minded 18th century man. Uh, he was made a vampire against his will and then really enters into the world of superstitious vampires like Armand and the children of Satan who think they serve the Christian devil and that they are cursed and they are damned and they are meant to drag other people down to suffering and death. He gets assaulted by them. Then he falls in love with Louis, who is a 19th century romantic, uh, very different from an 18th century man of reason. And Louis's melancholy and misery invades him. And Lestat gets it from all sides that he's, and he, and he says very early on in his own life, he says, I long to meet a vampire born in a different age who has a different view of all this. And of course, he finds just such a person in Marius, the ancient Roman, another very practical man of reason, who's who's the very antithesis of a superstitious uh, vampire who thinks he's a child of Satan. I mean, he's quite different. But Lestat's been wrestling with this all the time, you know, and and seeking to embrace himself and embrace the tribe is something positive. And Benji comes along. You know, Mahmoud, 12-year-old Bedouin, uh, who's made a vampire by Marius, no less. And he calls out to the tribe and says, listen, we're a tribe. We deserve to have parents. We deserve to have elders. We deserve to be alive. And hell shall have no dominion over us. And Lestat's pondering that. And actually, this novel is about how he gets just what he's always been asking for. And he still hasn't totally faced it as the book ends. You know, he's still... He's going to have to face in the next book what it means to give the dark gift as a true gift to somebody who's perfectly healthy and happy and not dying, you know, not on death's door like Rose or, or deeply wounded like Rose, or, you know, but somebody who's he's going to have to live up to what he's committed to, that, yes, the tribe is a positive, positive thing. The tribe has as much right to live as anybody, as any creatures. Lions have a right to be... Uh, snakes have a right to be, scorpions have a right to be, human beings of all kinds have a right to be, all the peoples of the earth, either gender has a right to be, children are people, we're all people. You know, that's that's kind of what it's about. Well, too, it struck me as I read this book that the your writing in The Wolf Gift and The Wolves of Midwinter really informs this book on two levels. On one hand, the Wolf Gift is a rock and action novel, yeah. <laughs> and, and there's a lot of that in this book. Yeah. And The Wolves of Midwinter really draws all the elements of that rock and action novel into a kind of a meditation on family and extended family mm. and the family we choose. Yeah. And vampires are the ultimate family yeah. of choice. Yeah. That's true. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. These themes are very deeply important to me. And my evolution over the 40 years of writing has been to become more optimistic and more positive, actually, rather than the opposite. I started out a very dark, grieving, broken individual writing Interview with the Vampire, which is about tragedy and death and loss and the shattering of all dreams. And now I'm writing much more hopeful, optimistic prose, and these themes are vitally of concern to me. Um, and it is important to me to um, to make these statements, you know. But I don't consciously think of this when I'm writing. You know, I get into the story. I got into Reuben and the Wolf Gift, and I went where that story took me. And I loved, I loved it. I loved the whole momentum. And I'm not surprised that, once again, it's about outcasts who find their own positive group and demand their own space in, in, in the cosmic world and their own destiny in the moral world. In this book, one of the things that I really liked was that while this book has contemplates a lot of metaphysical matters too, you also write about some current social events. And I'm thinking of the story of Rose, mm -hmm. which is very intense, but and mm -hmm. uh, not unlike a episode of Law and Order ripped from the headlines. Yeah, 
that's true. I'm a big Law and Order fan, by the way. As am I. <laughs> <laughs> I've probably watched every single episode of any variation of Law and Order. Yeah, I love myself yeah. as well. So talk about Rose's story and what informs that. Rose was a character that just came to me. It was almost as if uh, it was a message or something. I, a couple of years ago, I began to hear Rose's story in my head, the story of Rose. And I began to see Rose and see Lestat rescue this little girl from an earthquake in the in the Mediterranean. He happened to be walking one evening on a beautiful Greek island. And there was an earthquake, a tumultuous earthquake, that pitched this small island into the sea. And the only thing he had time to do was to grab this child and carry her up into the heavens. And then after that, he had adopted this child and tried to give her a normal life, a very good life, a very fine education and a normal life. And I thought, what was that like for Rose? And it fascinated me to give Rose's perspective on her Uncle Leston, as she calls him, because that's his legal name on the papers he uses to adopt her. He uses a legal name, Leston, to disguise who he is because of the rock star activities of Lestat de Leoncor. And to me, that was a thrilling thing to write. I loved, I love giving different, new, fresh perspectives on the older characters, seeing them through the eyes of, of, of new characters. In Queen of the Damned, I loved it with a character named Baby Jinx, and she was a little um, fang gang, you know, biker vampire. But I, I felt it was exciting to use Baby Jinx's perspective in the beginning of the novel to really tell you everything that was going on in the vampire world, that the queen had risen, that vampires were being killed everywhere, that the whole organize, all these grassroots organizations of vampires, the taverns, the vampire taverns, the vampire coven houses were being destroyed. I, to me, it was refreshing to see it through Baby Jenks's eyes. And I remember at the time, there were people that loved Baby Jenks, and they got sweatshirts that said the Fang Gang, and they came to signings with those shirts. And there were other people who said, I haven't a clue why that character's in the novel. And I thought, well, okay. I mean, I didn't want to explain, but <clears throat> for me, she was a wonderful, fresh perspective. But Rose is the same way in this novel. Well, too, you do that a lot in this novel with regards to giving multiple perspectives mm -hmm. on the same events. And for readers, that's a really... Uh, a moment we all relish is to see something from one person's perspective and then mm -hmm. from a completely different perspective. Yeah. So talk about crafting those two perspectives. <clears throat> well, and it, yeah, I, I, I love it. I absolutely love it. And, and as I said, the second novel after this is going to go on with all of this. How do these people come together? How does Marius relate to Bianca? How does, how does, how does Severain, <clears throat> this ancient female vampire, has been introduced? How does she relate to Marius and to Lestat and to everyone. And to me, it's, 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 it's very intense to do this at this time. The Vampire Chronicles has never been an organized series. It's always just been a chain of standalone novels that dealt with the characters in different ways and involved different kinds of writing. And say a novel like Blood and Gold from the point of view of Marius is a very different novel from Queen of the Damned. It's structured differently, so forth. This is what I wanted to do now, Prince Lestat. I wanted this structure, all of these points of view, all of these characters coming out. I wanted to really flesh out the world. I wanted to really expand it. And actually, I haven't totally completed that expansion. I want to go on with it. In this book, one of the things that, that is really satisfying is uh, the... Rose, how Rose is, was brought up. And I, I'd like you to talk about that because this is a real thing. I mean, th this is one of the thing, the powers of this kind of fiction is to address real social problems yes, and yes. issues in a, in a way mm -hmm. that's somewhat unreal that allows us to take it in. And mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about Rose's uh, upbringing and these uh, schools in the South. Well, actually, uh, Rose has a very bad run-in with what's called the troubled teen industry. And this is an industry that exists in our country that involves uh, a number of um, reformatory-type schools for teens. Some are run by religious people. Uh, some are not. Some are secular. But a lot of these schools uh, fly under the radar when it comes to inspection. Because they are religious, they're not inspected, and they're not held to standards. And there is a lot of criticism out there of the troubled teen industry in terms of those who abuse the system to create schools that 
are really rather cruel and unhealthy for the teenagers who find themselves in them. And there have been cases of judges being bribed by these schools to send really perfectly ordinary teenagers to these schools as if they were um, dangerous criminals or in danger of harming themselves. And that's what Rose runs into in this novel. She runs afoul of that system. And she finds herself, and I, I did get a chance to explore it, and I didn't go into great length about it, but, but I had done a lot of research on these schools. It was just something that interested me. Um, it was something I posted about on Facebook. Uh, I've read a number of books. I've read Janet Heimlich's book on uh, religious abuse of kids, uh, kids abused in the name of religion. And uh, I, I wanted to include that. And, and I did, and I put Rose in that situation. And some kids have died in these schools. They've died of neglect uh, while being taunted and ridiculed. And, of course, not only is this absolutely horrific for the child involved, it has been absolutely devastating for the families who put these children in these schools because they were told they needed this tough love, uh, severe physical discipline, severe deprivation and isolation. And I don't think we talk enough about this right now in America. It's, it's, some of these kids are shipped out of the country, too, to schools in foreign countries where it's very difficult uh, for the parents to get them back or even find them. It's, it's a problem. I'm not saying that every you know, troubled teen school is like this, but I'm saying it's, it's a real problem. Yeah. On, the, on the other hand, one of the things that you have in this book to great and good effect is you have there's a lot of humor in this book. And I think it, it, there's a, a lot of great little quipping lines, and, and it's, it's indicative that of your lightning of mood. And that's mm-hmm. what's interesting. For how dire things get, the mood ends up feeling lighter at the end than it does at the beginning. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. I think that's the direction I'm heading in. And all I can do is write the most authentic book I'm capable of at this time, and there's no doubt. Some of the reviewers have already pointed this out on Amazon. They've said this this reflects her optimism, the optimism of her latest few books. It's here, you know, and I'm I'm glad, you know. That said, there is no lack of of gore and violence in this book either, and I think yeah. this might be one of the more over the top. Uh, there are some couple of scenes that are somewhat over the top, and, yeah. and you have such a nice sensibility about you. Talk about putting yourself in the place where you can pull off some of these scenes convincingly. Uh, Lestat has to be uh, cruel to be kind. Well, Lestat's always been my impulsive and... Um, practical hero. You know, he's going to do what's going to solve the problem. If there's a Gordian knot, he's going to cut it with an axe. I mean, he's going to, you know, he's going to break the <laughs> tangle. And I, I love, he is me. I, I love that about him. I mean, um, when I wrote Interview with the Vampire 40 years ago, I was very different. I was Louis. I was the paralyzed, uh, grief-stricken hero of that book. But now, by the time I wrote Lestat nine years later, uh, I, I had become Lestat in many ways, and Lestat's my ideal self. And he does have a cruel streak, and he is capable of getting impatient and saying, oh, the hell with it, you know, enough already, <laughs> just doing something uh, violent, you know. I, I like dealing with that complexity in him. Now, it's also interesting, too, that um, where Farid is located is uh, yet another place. You like to write about the places you live, don't you? Oh, I do. Yeah, Farid's compound is in the desert near Palm Springs, where I live now, actually. And it's the I haven't got too much into the physical location, but it's a great place for Farid to have a compound because there's so much land out there. And there's also uh, great medical facilities in the desert, great hospitals. And, and you know, for somebody like um, Farid, you've got to operate fairly near the conventional hospital so that all your equipment delivery and all your chemical deliveries won't stand out as something suspicious to the powers that be. We are living in the age of satellite surveillance, government surveillance, all of that. So he's got to place himself pretty near to Eisenhower Medical Center and other research places and, and, and have some facilities for mortals so that he can fly under the wire. And this takes me to another aspect of these books, 
Um, and I think m- much of your writing uh, is travel writing. Whether you're traveling around the world, mm-hmm. which you do in this book, there's all sorts of locations beautifully described, mm-hmm. and internal interiors and exteriors. You also travel in time as well, mm-hmm. um, in terms of taking us to different time periods. People, everybody comes from, you know, was made into a vampire in a different time, so they have different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Talk about your work as uh, travel fiction, time and place. Well, locale has always been very important to me. Physical locale. It's a character in my books. It It's almost always that way. And I'm frustrated that some of the greatest books that I've read and loved don't have enough about locale. Um, you know, I wish, um, I treasure the descriptions of London in, in uh, the old Curiosity Shop, for example, and wish there were more physical descriptions of London in David Copperfield and more um, detailed descriptions in Great Expectations. I loved Miss Havisham's house in Great Expectations and, and that whole idea of this little blacksmith boy, uh, Pip, being taken to this incredible structure and, and seeing wealth and power in such a gloomy and frightening uh, form as as Seda's house, Miss Havisham's house, you know. So I I work with that in my my book spontaneously. New Orleans has always been very important to me. I loved it early on, and I loved it in detail. As a child, I didn't understand why everybody around me didn't just stop and stare at the beautiful old houses. And I approach every other place I visit pretty much in the same way. You know, I, I was at a signing recently with my son Christopher in Santa Rosa, and I said, you know, I've always wanted to live in Santa Rosa, Chris. Would you come visit me if I moved here? And he said, Mom, you want to live in every place we go and do a signing. You know, and it's really right. <laughs> he said, you know, we go to Vancouver, and you want to move to Vancouver. He said, you're always talking that way. And I think it, it's true that, that locale arrests me. It takes me in. I, I start thinking my whole life in terms of wherever I am. And um, I, I just can't avoid that. So, yes, I describe Paris and Lestat's present dwelling in the country and Armand's house in Paris and the old houses in New Orleans where Lestat lived with Louis. I can't help myself. I love it. And, of course, there will always be some readers who complain about it, and there will be some readers who love it. But it's it's what I have to do. You know, I, I also really like in, in this book— um, the way that you play the reality of the books within the book itself against the reality of the book itself so that the Lestat, the vampire chronicles are part of Lestat's world. Right, And yeah. you get a kind of Escheresque Hall of Mirrors thing happening there. Yeah, I, I think that's that's necessary to a really convincing illusion because— the conceit was that these books are published, that they are published and they're out there. And if they're published and they're out there, then the other vampires have read them. And if Lestat really was a rock star and did YouTube films, or we called them at the time rock videos, uh, they're out there. So people have seen them and they should be reacting to them. People, I wanted to make the world as, as authentic and vital as possible. You know, it's so disappointing when you read a, a, a modern horror novel or see a show in which nobody seems to have ever heard of vampires or werewolves before. You think, where have you been? Don't you watch The Late Show? I mean, it, you, you have to accommodate what's going on in the culture when you write speculative fiction, or it's simply not going to work. And, But do notice with Prince Lestat, no one is describing it as a published vampire chronicle. Lestat does not introduce the book, and he does not say that it is being written by him and put out to the public. That hasn't been said yet. So what will happen with the information in the Prince Lestat with regard to the whole tribe is yet to be determined. So, and you're currently at work on the two successive novels, and you you don't know whether or not you're going to be referring to this one publicly in the first novel yet or not, and the successors or not? Uh, I don't know. Nobody has told us yet exactly how this information is going to the tribe. This was a much more private novel. You know, it, it, Lestat starts it off just by saying, I'd been hearing the voice for a long time. He doesn't say, I'm giving you a story here of everything. He just, you're just invited into the world. And I haven't made the frame for it yet as a vampire chronicle. That is yet to come. Well, that 
takes us to another aspect of these of these books and all your books, which is the import of story to the characters in their lives, creating their lives through stories as stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm fascinated by that, and and you know, I have tales within tales. People like the Elder's Tale and Queen of the Damned, where the Elder tells Marius the history of the vampires, is inside Marius's story to Lestat, which is inside Lestat's story to the reader. And I love playing with that, the tale within the tale. It's a Gothic device, actually. And uh, I'm fascinated with it. Well, I, I love, too, this idea of where you have, like, a plot that unfolds in grand sagas that form the backdrop and mm-hmm. whispers in the foreground about, well, he's maybe he's doing this. Will he come out or not? Yeah, yeah. It's really an interesting yeah. Yeah. way to plot. As you Does this just unfold from the tip of your pen or— it un- it's pretty spontaneous and, and, and unconscious with me. I, you know, I'm, I'm not a neat, organized writer. I don't think anyone would ever say that I was. Um, I proceed in, in a sort of, uh, I don't know, passion. I just let it pour out of me. And I do my best to organize it, but not along highly organized principles. You know, it's, it's, it flows <laughs> out of me. And... and um, it is what it is. I don't. I don't know how to say it beyond that. I, I. I do think there are some series being published today: paranormal, romance, speculative fiction that are maybe more organized. I don't know. Maybe Game of Thrones, for example. Maybe those books are much more highly organized. I'm not sure. You know, but the only way I know to do it is the way I'm doing it. So it, it seems to me that you could take this book, or somebody could take this book, and kind of hash through it and create an encyclopedia of Anne Rice's universe. Has anybody done that? I'm surprised that they haven't. If not, are your publishers enlisting somebody to do so? Well, years ago, an author named Catherine Ramsland wrote two companion guides to Mm -hmm. my work, but they're now um, pretty old. But she wrote companion guides, the big hardcover companion guides to the Mayfair Witches books and to the Vampire Chronicles up to a certain point. And then they were not updated or, you know, I stopped writing the books. And I, I don't know whether they will want uh, some kind of updating or somebody new will take on and write another guide. You know, I would love to see it. I, I would love to see it. I'll tell you where there are guides, just informal guides to my work. They're on Wikipedia. Mm, you I can wouldn't... go look up Marius. And, they'll, you know, there's a Wikipedia article <laughs> that tells you who he is. And our Queen of the Dam, they'll tell you the whole plot and everything that's going on. So, And and so far, what I've seen, they're pretty accurate. You create a few and flesh out, uh, literally, <laughs> a, a few new interesting critters in this book. Yeah. So talk about, uh, uh, you know, adding to your already uh, vibrant uh, fauna and flora of Anne Rice's world of the preternatural. Well, I've had a theory for a long time that ghosts on the planet could be evolving just the way we are. That a ghost 5,000 years ago may not have been a very strong entity, but a ghost today may be much more evolved and able to appear to people and interact with them physically much, much better. That that ghosts might be able to take their etheric bodies and materialize by drawing particles to themselves to create uh, something that is, in fact, a material body, though it's not really a human body. It looks and sounds like one. And I love that idea, and I've been developing that um, in, in the Mayfair Witches for a while and, and in the Vampire Chronicles, this idea that spirits can spellbind you, they can come down, they can take physical bodies, they can pretend to be human like Memnock does in Memnock the Devil. And I want to play with that in a lot of work. I, I have a novel now that I'm dying to write about, well, I, I, I don't know when I'll get to it, but it's about a ghost, you know, and, and his adventures in discovering and, and, and uh, developing his ability to come through. I worked on it a lot at the Mayfair Witches. Lasher was a spirit who did this, who got very, very skilled at physical illusions and at being physically present and being able to interact with matter. So I, I do it in this book. There are some powerful spirits. Gremped is one. Uh, another one. Um, I love Grimt. He's yeah, Grimt <laughs> is about the most powerful of the spirits, actually. He is the powerful spirit. And I loved writing his story, and I had a whole lot more I could have said about Grimt that I hope I get into the second book. I, you wouldn't believe what I left out of this book. 
I just couldn't get to it. <laughs> well, uh, I'm looking forward to it in successive books. You know, when you talk about ghosts accumulating stuff, it just made me think how many skin cells we shed every moment. Oh, yeah. You, you could yeah. just sweep up the skin cells in the studio after a day and probably put together a fairly convincing uh, semaculum of, of somebody. Well, exactly. I mean, imagine if that, you know, the, if ghosts are energy and if there is an etheric body that they retain from their from their biological lives, imagine them getting skill at simply drawing all these types of particles right out of the biological biological world to create this this body. And that's what Grimp does in the novel. Grimp has this very sophisticated body. He can board a plane. He can go through the machinery. He appears to have all the internal organs. All that we've learned about anatomy, all that we've published, helps these clever ghosts and spirits. They read those books, too. And, they, and it helps them to design the body with their energy with their mind. It helps them to know where, where the organs are supposed to be and how they work and how they function. So ghosts are getting stronger. <laughs> I'm convinced of it. <laughs> I, I can't say I'm comforted by this thought. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want it to be comfortable. <laughs> and well, that's, I think, one of the uh, strengths of this book for all that it has this kind of optimism. In, it's infused with a kind of optimism mm-hmm. that's darkly shaded nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Um your books also seem to you like to kind of prod at people, and I, it's interesting to me that you have a lot of physicality in these books. There's a lot of kissing. There's mm-hmm. a lot. There is more kissing in this book than I think almost in any book I've ever read. Really, really, in in Princess Todd. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot. Well, it's with the exception of maybe the beauty books, but okay, <laughs> which. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> which were also very enjoyable. That said. Uh, not a lot of sex, but tell us a little bit about Fareed in this. There, there are, we might Well, we be... don't want to go too far there, but Fareed is, is a doctor who is pretty much telling the vampires, some of the vampires, that he can stop the senescence that's gone on. You know, that you know, when you become a vampire, a force comes into you that basically fixes you physically forever. You're dead, technically, but you're not really dead. You're now animated by this force that begins to change your body into something stronger. And But if you're given enough hormone injections by Fareed, who knows how to do it, he can override that force that's making you stop still, and he can cause your hormones uh, to function again, and you can become capable of things for a while that you were not capable of just as a vampire without the injections. And I think that makes perfect sense. <laughs> and, and it leads to some really enter engaging uh, plot complications in this book. So you have two more of these planned. Where, what else are you working on? Well, I want to get back to the wolf gift crowd. I want to get back to my, my morphin kingdom, my werewolves who live in Northern California, who live in Mendocino County. I want very much to get back to them. I also want to do a third book in my Angel series, uh, a big book that I've had planned for years where Toby O'Dare, my hero, uh, gets into a lot of trouble both in the present and in the past and has a lot of questions for his angel mentor, Malkiah. I mean, all of this means a lot to me. I don't know when I'll get to it. And, of course, a lot of my readers want me to go back and write a sequel to Ramses the Damned, and I'd like to get to that too, but I don't know when I will. One more question I have for you. We all know that the rights of, to these books have been kind of revamped and resold and come back to you, and it looks like we're going to see maybe a more faithful or uh, adaptation of these books. Talk a little bit about turning these into movies. What well, can you tell us? Well, uh, we have... We Universal has really wants to reboot the entire franchise, as they call it, is my understanding. And my son, Christopher Rice, is writing the script. And this is really very, very good news for me. You know, we've been negotiating for years with the producers, uh, Brian Grazier and Erica Huggins at Imagine, and they were very enthusiastic about these books. But we did not have a studio on board to make the project go into high gear. And um, I invited Christopher to the table to write a script on spec uh, for the project, and Christopher did. And that 
script got Universal to come to the table and say, yes, it's time for us to get serious about this whole thing. So I'm very enthusiastic about it. Christopher really wrote what I consider to be a faithful script, a script that got the spirit of the characters. I functioned like a producer, answering questions, advising, you know, saying when I didn't think something was authentic. But um, I have high hopes for the project. I think right now Hollywood is more aware than ever that if they're going to do these large franchises, they need to be faithful to the fan base. Harry Potter has taught them that. Game of Thrones has taught them that. The Lord of the Rings has taught them that. That there's no real future in buying a series of books and then changing everything. That will simply not develop into any kind of viable franchise. That if you are faithful to what the readers and the fans and the nerds at Comic-Con want, you know, they will give you tremendous word-of-mouth support for the project and help you launch it. If you go against them, if you show contempt for them and for the things that they love, they're not going to be so happy, and there might not be a discernible audience for the product you make. Well, the difference between books made made into movies and movies made into movies is books actually have you have to have a story in mm -hmm. a book yeah. you can't just get away on special effects and That's say right. wow yeah. Yeah. so when they jettison the story in a book mm -hmm. <laughs> they lose the best part of it oh abs absolutely and and it was absolutely great that the harry potter movies were made so faithful to the books i mean i finally sat down and watched those movies a few months back and i had never seen them and I was amazed that they were set in England, that they were as British as they were, but they had a huge mass appeal in America, unbelievable mass appeal. And But Rowling had insisted that they be done the way she wrote them. And she wanted the story to be accurate. She wanted the characters to be true. And it was an outstanding success. And I think, like I said, I think Hollywood has finally gotten the message that you don't have to immediately change and, and water down and dumb down and, and completely alter what you buy. You have to dig into it and, and try to find what made the fans so fanatical about it in the first place. Game of Thrones is the other outstanding example. Uh, I'm just starting reading those books. The TV show, which I've been watching every season, is incredibly faithful to those books. Anne Rice's new book is Prince Lestat. Thank you for joining me, Anne. Well, it's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>